If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of December 11, 2022. The podcast that caused the price of gas to fall. This is your host, Shane Killian. This is the last podcast for 2022. After the new year, we'll be back with our year in review, as well as the idiot of the year. Now let's ameliorate the news of the bogus. If you say there's no proof the Arizona election issues flipped the results, at the current time you'd probably be right. But if you're going to say there's no reason to question it, it's hard to think of anything more wrong than that. Data analysts with Analytics 805 have gone over the data on the results, and it would be an understatement to say they found anomalies. They found discrepancies so large they're almost unfathomable. According to founder Thomas Cole, quote, We saw 14% more support for Republicans than Democrats in the state Senate races. So it makes no sense to think those Republicans suddenly flipped to Democrat Katie Hobbs for governor by this large of a margin. In a governor's race separated by only 0.33% of the vote, that's more than enough to raise questions about the outcome. Especially considering the margin of victory Republicans won in other statewide races, including the 11% margin the state treasurer won over her Democratic opponent despite doing very little campaigning. Taken as a whole, votes for the nine U.S. House races went to Republicans by a 13% margin and by a 14% margin in the cumulative vote totals for state Senate. Cole said, quote, Does anyone really believe that voters preferred GOP state Senate candidates with a 14% advantage, yet swung back dramatically to favor Democrats by up to 5% margins in four other races? It defies the odds. I can understand a few percentage points difference, but around one-third of voters voting Democrat in some races but Republican in others makes no sense. The margins are too grossly different. Especially considering that it was just enough for Democrats to eke out a victory in the races for Governor, U.S. Senate, Secretary of State, and Attorney General. Add to that mainstream polling showing a comfortable lead for Republican candidates. We've talked about polls being wrong before, but they're not that wrong. And it was also the case in the prediction markets, which have a much better track record. Columnists for Arizona News Media also picked Kerry Lake to win the governor's race over Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, even ones that were in Hobbs's corner expressing disappointment in her refusal to debate Lake. As we covered, on Election Day, polling centers, especially in Maricopa County, the most populous county in the state, experienced numerous problems, with upwards of half of the voting machines experiencing problems and thousands of voters feeling disenfranchised. 72% of the votes on Election Day were Republican. That's easily enough to cover the margin. The election, by the way, was run by Hobbs's office, and she refused to recuse herself, as did the election officials who had created a PAC to campaign against Lake and other Republicans. Again, if you think there's no reason to question this election, you just haven't been paying attention. Lake and Abe Hamaday, the AG candidate, have filed lawsuits over the matter. In the process, unless there's major corruption in the Arizona courts, they'll get discovery about all the election information. With everything we've seen so far, it'll be very interesting to see what they uncover. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, 
but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you create at Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. And now it's time for another edition of Stupid Copyright Tricks. Okay, that's not actually an edition we do, but it should be. Every so often, the creators of the free open source 3D graphics software Blender release a short film showcasing the features of the software. On December 15th, they'll release their 14th short called Charge. They're all released as open movies under a Creative Commons license. Calling themselves the creators who share, Blender Studio not only releases the final movie as open source, but also the production files, assets, artwork, and other content. This lets people recreate and remix the content as derivative works. Most notably, their short Tears of Steel, a blend of live action and CGI, was reshot by the Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute of Automation to make a Chinese version using their new footage mixed with the CGI assets made available by Blender Studio. So that's exactly what independent film composer and producer Bruno Fernandez Ruiz did with Caminandes 3, Yamigos, replacing the music in the officially released short with his own to showcase his composition abilities. He said, quote, I am a composer and producer for film music, and I use Blender videos for rescoring, as Blender video provides the video, dialogue, and SFX under a CC BY 3.0 to which I can add my own music on top. I do this because it's hard to find video footage available for scoring, except in music scoring competitions. And there's absolutely no problem with that! But after he uploaded his version of Caminandes 3, his video was taken down due to a copyright strike. Zor TV claimed that he infringed on their copyright because they showed the short film in a YouTube show they did in 2018. But this was not a content ID match. This was a DMCA complaint that they filed deliberately on content that they do not own. So Bruno filed a counter notice. Take it from someone who's been through it more than once. That's not a small thing. It means giving the other party your name, address, and other personal information. Bruno filed it, and YouTube denied it. They said counter notices should only be filed in case of a mistake or misidentification, which this absolutely was. So Bruno made that clear, telling them under no uncertain terms that ZorTV is not the copyright holder of Kaminandes 3 and had no right to submit a takedown request. He also told them, quote, The content in my video is owned by Blender Studio, who has the full copyright. 
I have a license to use this content under the Creative Commons license by 3.0. After three such attempts, YouTube denied him once again, saying, quote, Based on the information that you have provided, it appears that you do not have the necessary rights to post the content on YouTube. Therefore, we regretfully cannot honor your request. Seriously? Bruno said, quote, I feel that the manual reviewers are respecting copyright in a strange way, as the reviewers saw the license and ignored it, probably because it was not a commercial license. And the only thing that I feel would make them change their mind is if the works were in the public domain, which they are not and don't need to be. Primarily, I feel this is a lack of executive understanding of this problem, mixed with a combination of lack of training and proper playbooks for the editorial specialists looking at copyright strikes to understand that open-source licenses are valid licenses to copyright content. At the end of the day, it is money-talking. Big studio takedowns are followed up without challenge and counter-notifications ignored. I feel we have no rights, honestly, and that the DMCA achieves exactly the opposite of what it was supposed to do. There is no course of action anymore for me versus the platform YouTube. My only option now is to take this to court, but clearly I won't, since I'm just an independent composer and can't bear the legal costs. The process is totally asymmetric. Yeah, this is a huge problem if someone who doesn't have any rights to the material can just take down Creative Commons works. Although, one thing we've seen, this is not the DMCA doing exactly the opposite of what it is supposed to do. This is the DMCA doing exactly what it is supposed to do. Make life miserable for independent film producers and other people who compete with the big content cartels. That was the idea from day one. Blender's lead developer, Tom Rosendahl, said to Bruno in response, quote, It's very sad that YouTube does not even check for the license of content and disrespects people who contribute to free culture and creative commons that way. I need time to study the right steps, though. We have no staff here available to go after situations like this. I should be busy with other things, like securing a good future for Blender. One way that could work is that we escalate it to the Creative Commons organization. After all, it's their mission. Hopefully they do. What's at stake here is nothing more than the right to share our own work. If a TV company can take advantage of Creative Commons to show a work, one they have no role in producing, and then claim copyright and have other outlets shut down, it threatens the ability of any of us to produce original or derivative works. It could even happen with this very podcast. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government sensors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. 
You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. By the same token, we could have a segment called Stupid Cop Tricks. There are plenty of them, of course. So many that years ago we decided not to do them unless there was a unique angle, something we hadn't talked about before. And this is something that's been a problem with police that the courts seem to finally be calling them on, considering ordinary, innocent human behavior, such as fidgeting, to be suspicious behavior. I'm a fidgeter. Always have been. It's just been impossible for me to stop tapping my heel or bouncing my knee or whatever for any length of time. And long ago, I got sick and tired of these body language pseudoscience wackos from saying it must mean I'm lying. Thankfully, it hasn't caused me any trouble with the popos yet, but the same can't be said of Teresa Miller, who was pulled over for survey says... an inoperable taillight. He then brought out the drug dog, which alerted, even though there were no drugs in the car but there was a firearm for which they indicted her. Thankfully, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated her conviction and sentence, saying the officer had no reasonable basis for extending the traffic stop and remanded the issue back to the district court. But that's not the whole story. The driver was Jessica Phillips. Miller was in the back seat. And they're trying to use ordinary, everyday human behavior to claim reasonable suspicion. Behavior they were lying about, by the way. They tried to claim that Phillips' hands were shaking, and that means suspicion for some reason. According to the court finding, quote, When a backup officer arrived, Officer Helms told him that he was suspicious of the vehicle's occupants because Phillips was shaking and tapping on the car door. At approximately the same time, Officer Helms printed Phillips' warning ticket. Soon thereafter, Officer Helms approached Phillips' vehicle asked Phillips to exit the vehicle, and told her he would be leading his canine around the vehicle to sniff for illegal drugs. After the canine indicated that there were drugs in the vehicle, officers performed a full search. During the search, they located two handguns in Miller's backpack. And we're not going to make anything of the fact that there were no drugs. But even then, as I said, it was just an outright lie. Quote, After Phillips came to a stop, Officer Helms approached the driver's side of the vehicle. His body camera captured the exchange with Phillips. Shortly after Officer Helms approached Phillips' vehicle, she began searching for her license. While Officer Helms testified that Phillips' hands were shaking during the encounter, her hands did not appear to be shaking while she was handing Officer Helms her license or her insurance information. The next time that Phillips' hands were in view, it still was not evident that she was shaking. And as for the tapping, quote, The only arguably nervous behavior the government can point to after Officer Helms' statement is Phillips tapping her fingers on the car door. But tapping is not an indicator of excessive or sustained nervousness because it is completely consistent with law-abiding behavior. Although fidgeting may certainly be a sign of nervousness, tapping one's fingers may just as likely be a sign of annoyance, impatience, or even boredom, any of which may be expected when a person is stopped by a police officer and is awaiting the results of a license check. By itself, 
Tapping one's fingers is a very weak indicator of nervousness. The court quoted United States v. Bowman saying, As this court has recognized on multiple occasions, a driver's nervousness is not a particularly good indicator of criminal activity because most everyone is nervous when interacting with the police. By the way, if you're completely calm, polite, and responsive, they'll take that as suspicious behavior because who wouldn't be nervous when pulled over by police? Morton's fork is one of their most common utensils. And additionally, although it has nothing to do with the fidgeting aspect of the story, they did try to claim it was suspicious that she was traveling on a known drug corridor. But the court ruled, Traveling on a known drug corridor is not itself probative of criminal behavior and does not serve to eliminate a substantial portion of innocent travelers. The number of persons using the interstate highways as drug corridors pales in comparison to the number of innocent travelers on those roads. It still needs to be the case that officers are punished when this happens, and if nothing else, should have their pay garnished to compensate Miller and Phillips for their time and legal expenses. Then maybe we'll see cops changing their behavior for the better. And maybe the district court too, since they knew the cops were lying about her handshaking. Do you have children? Or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling? Or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. <laughs> And now it's time to hyperverberate this week's biggest bogan emitter. And this week it goes to former Obama National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, who accidentally admitted in his book that Obama, Biden, Hillary, and John Kerry all knew it was a lie that Edward Snowden fled to Russia. I mean, we already knew that. They deliberately waited until he was in the air to a layover at the Moscow airport on his way to Ecuador with another layover in Havana to cancel his passport, leaving him stranded. But this time, the proof is absolute, definitive, and undeniable. Obama officials have been saying that Snowden fled to Russia, and he was such a hypocrite for choosing to live in such a repressive country, and oh, doesn't that mean he was a Russian agent all along? But Rhodes's memoir tells the absolute truth. Obama officials, including Rhodes himself, blatantly, deliberately, and unashamedly lied to the public about what happened. In fact, in his book, Rhodes actually brags about his role in the lie. In a chapter devoted to Obama's efforts to normalize relations with Cuba, Rhodes recounts Obama's threats to Cuba that they had better withdraw their permission for Snowden to lay over in Havana on his way to Latin America, where he intended to seek asylum. 
Hear it from his own words, quote, Around the time of our second meeting, Edward Snowden was stuck in the Moscow airport trying to find someone who would take him in. Reportedly, he wanted to go to Venezuela, transiting through Havana, but I knew that if the Cubans aided Snowden, any rapprochement between our countries would prove impossible. I pulled Alejandro Castro aside and said I had a message that came from President Obama. I reminded him that the Cubans had said they wanted to give Obama political space so that he could take steps to improve relations. If you take in Snowden, I said, that political space will be gone. I never spoke to the Cubans about this issue again. A few days later, back in Washington, I woke up to a news report. Former U.S. spy agency contractor Edward Snowden got stuck in the transit zone of a Moscow airport because Havana said it would not let him fly from Russia to Cuba, a Russian newspaper reported. I took it as a message. The Cubans were serious about improving relations. Snowden and his representatives had specifically secured a commitment from the Cuban government to allow him safe passage, and the only reason he's in Russia now is because Rhodes and his fellow officials deliberately trapped him there. By invalidating his passport and getting Cuba to revoke their permission, they made sure he could go nowhere other than Russia. This is proof. By the way, did you catch how he threw in Venezuela? Snowden was attempting to go to Ecuador or perhaps Bolivia to seek asylum. Venezuela was never considered. But it's now agreed that Venezuela's a bad country, so hey, what's one more lie to impugn Snowden's name? And hey, given what happened to Assange after getting asylum from Ecuador, it might well be for the better. And yes, Rhodes did indeed lie. For one example, listen to him talking to another former Obama national security official, Timothy Vietner, back in February of 2017 on his Pod Save America show. And I, I think it, it just, it should not have been kind of put in the, in my view, in the bucket that it was, which is this guy's a whistleblower. Because mm-hmm. um, again, like a whistleblower doesn't conspicuously <laughs> pass through China to Russia, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, like there's, you know, and reporters are always say, well, you know, are you telling me that you know that he was working for the Russians or what have you? I'm like, I'm not. I'm telling you what I see, which Mm -hmm. is this guy went to China and Russia, the two most adversarial intelligence competitors of the United States. He could have gone to, you know, some very liberal European country that probably mm-hmm. would have taken him in, right? Like he, um, or he could have faced the music here. The choice of those destinations speaks volumes to me. What speaks volumes is your outright dishonesty. Snowden went to Hong Kong to meet with Glenn Greenwald and the other reporters. Notice how Rhodes doesn't say Hong Kong, which at the time was seen as a very normal destination for business people and financiers. No, he says China. Snowden was doing exactly what Rhodes said he should have done, sought asylum in other countries. But he knows, and he knew at the time, that the only reason Snowden is in Russia is because Rhodes himself trapped him there. And, of course, it exposes Hillary Clinton as the liar we always knew her to be many, many times when she repeated the lie when she knew quite well the truth, like from this Guardian interview in 2014. Mr. Snowden took all this material, 
He fled to Hong Kong. He uh, spent time with the Russians in their consulate. Uh, then he went to Moscow seeking uh, the uh, protection of Vladimir Putin, uh, which is at the height of ironies, given the surveillance state that Russia is. If he wishes to return home, uh, knowing that he would be held accountable, but also be able to present a defense, that is his decision to make. Every single word of that is a lie, and she knows it, including her claim that he'd be able to present a defense. She knows that under the blatantly unconstitutional and tyrannical Espionage Act, he wouldn't. This is lying, conscious, willful, and completely without shame. What kind of sociopath do you have to be to lie with such impunity for years? By the way, Rhodes is now an MSNBC contributor, because of course he is. It's one thing to know that people lied. It's another to have them come right out and admit it. It's a whole other level entirely to have them admit it while in the process of bragging about it. That just has to make Ben Rhodes this week's biggest Bogani emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's equilibrate this week's Idiot And it's yet another one for the FDA about something that once got a community strike for my YouTube channel, even though I did nothing but read out an article from a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Yes, this is about ivermectin, and this is the first time I've said it out loud since that happened, so we'll see what happens now. Anyway, the FDA has been saying all along that ivermectin doesn't help reduce the ill effects of COVID, and they continue to say it on their website even as they point to studies that say it just might. Their website states, quote, Currently available data do not show ivermectin is effective against COVID-19. But a review from the Epic Times of the studies they reference show that, hey, you know what? Maybe we should be using ivermectin against COVID. A meta-analysis authored by Dr. Pierre Corey and published in the American Journal of Therapeutics found substantial evidence of ivermectin's effectiveness, he called the FDA's position, quote, one of the most glaring examples of corruption of modern evidence-based medicine. There's one message they want everyone to understand, and that message is that ivermectin doesn't work. That's not a scientific conclusion. That's theirs. That's their perverted and distorted interpretation of the data. 
The article goes over the various studies, again linked to by the FDA, showing ivermectin, either alone or in conjunction with other medicines such as doxycycline, help COVID patients recover faster and with less severe symptoms than those who received a placebo. One of the researchers, Hector Carvalho, said that ivermectin, quote, could have saved so many lives. It's been a crime against mankind to prevent its prescription. As for the other half, at worst, the studies merely couldn't detect an effect, but many of those were low-quality studies where the predicted effect wouldn't be expected to show up, and none of them showed ivermectin causing harm. So while you might reasonably argue it would be wrong to prescribe ivermectin exclusive of other treatments, it's something resembling medical malpractice to say it shouldn't be part of a kitchen sink-style treatment regimen. And something else that bears repeating. Ivermectin has never been solely horse dewormer. It's been used safely in humans under FDA approval for decades for various parasitic infections, and no virologist will deny that, also for decades, it's been shown to have antiviral effects in vitro. Which was the claim that got this channel its original strike? Basically, if I go a week without uploading anything after this podcast goes up, you'll know why. But never let the FDA forget the tweet they made saying, You are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. That made patients afraid to take ivermectin for scabies and other things it's been prescribed for for decades. Pharmacists have refused to fill it, and doctors who prescribed it for other purposes and not for treating COVID-19 have found themselves under attack, all as a direct result of this campaign of misinformation. Don't go thinking that just because a drug is released for one purpose doesn't mean it isn't useful for another. In fact, it happens so often there's a term for it, repositioning. And when doctors prescribe it for a purpose other than what the FDA has approved it for, it's called off-label and is not illegal or improper for them to do. It's simultaneously horrific and hilarious that the evidence that the FDA has been wrong about this is in their own cited studies. That's 88 studies all total, 56 of which are either ongoing, completed but results aren't reported, or completed but retracted or withdrawn. Of the remaining 32, 16 found it effective, two of which were randomized, controlled, and blinded. Most of them were observational. There isn't really any difference in quality, per se, between a clinical study and an observational one. It's all about the methodology. Even if the study is observational, if it has good methodology, it's worth more than a poorly designed clinical trial. Of the other 16, 6 reported not ineffectiveness, but mixed results, and said that larger trials are warranted. The other 10 couldn't get results that were statistically significant, including one that said ivermectin probably does work better than a placebo, but the methodology of their study couldn't reveal it. In one case, 40% of the participants didn't receive the gold dose, and median treatment time was half of what it was supposed to be. In another, they waited days after the onset of symptoms to begin treatment when ivermectin works best within 24 hours of manifesting symptoms. Corey said, quote, they literally try to treat as late into the disease as they can, for a short duration as they can, at the lowest dose that they can. And they also try to find as healthy and mild patients as you can. And yet, 
When they conduct those kinds of trials, it's on the front page of a high-impact journal, and the conclusion states, this shows there's no role for ivermectin in treatments. Absolutely absurd. And so it's really just corruption of these trials. And once again, I have to point out, the ones that are panned, but many studies find useful, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, are generics, whereas the ones that are approved, like Paxlovid and Remdesivir, are patented and make a lot of money for the pharmaceutical companies, even after real-world reports show both dubious effectiveness and serious adverse effects. Now, I'm not saying they're a bunch of evil, monocle-wearing, mustache-twirlers cackling with glee at the money they make over human suffering as they light cigars with $100 bills. What I am saying is a truth that's as old as the hills, a principle of economics that's withstood every test it's been given. People act the way they're incentivized. And, although it's not formalized economics, it's just as true and observed for just as long. Politics ruins everything. So all of that makes the FDA this week's... Idiot up this I'd rather be a quack than a ducky edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Remember, this is the last podcast for 2022. We'll be back in the new year. Until then, here's a quote from PJ O'Rourke. The mystery of government is not how Washington works, but how to make it stop. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.